Would you join me as we pray, please? Oh, our Heavenly Father, holy, holy, holy. So we come to you this morning in worship and in praise. We lift up your holy name, and we would ask that you would be honored and pleased and glorified in this next few moments. Lord, thank you for the songs we have sung. Thank you for the praises we have offered. May you receive them as you are worthy of praise. And may you empower me as I deliver this message. May you speak to each of us as we are here. May you pierce our hearts with your spirit and use your living word in our life. And I pray this, Jesus, in your most holy and precious name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Thomas Weekly. For those of you who do not know who I am, I am the director of Campus Crusade for Christ for Crew at Western Kentucky. My wife and I have been back in Bowling Green for the last 31 years, and we actually have been members of Living Hope uh, for 31 years as well. When we came back to Bowling Green as graduated from Western, we came back, we joined Living Hope on that time frame. Here at the church, I teach an ABS class at 9.30, except for this morning, uh, and then I teach also in the chapter. Uh, at the 11 o'clock service um, on the rotation in the chapel there. You know, as I mentioned, I've been in ministry uh, on campus, a campus pastor here for th- over 30 years, but I've been the campus pastor for over th- about 35 years. And in many uh, other campuses, as well as traveling in other locations around the world, and I've had some phenomenal conversations, you can imagine, in the last 30 or 35 years with college students from all different parts of the world and, and from here. But one of the most memorable ones actually took place here at Western Kentucky uh, about 15 or 20 years ago. And it was during the time when Richard Carlisle, who was a pastor here living Hope as well, but at that time was on staff with our ministry uh, at Western. Um, it was one afternoon, and we were walking through the student center, and I was going through uh, student center on campus, and uh, saw Richard, and Richard and Scott were talking to a student. And as I walked by, I got uh, contact with Richard. Richard said, Thomas, come here. I want to introduce someone to you. And so, sure enough, he, I walked over to him. I said, hey, Thomas. He said, uh, I said, Richard, how you doing? How you doing, Scott? And I said, who is this young man? And he said, this is the person I want you to meet. His name is Jeeves. Now, Jeeves isn't his real name, but his real name is just as much like Jeeves as you would think. And so, I thought, Jeeves, that's an interesting name. I said, I've never heard that before, your name, Jeeves. And he said, yeah. He said, uh, I'm from California, and my mother and dad named me Jeeves. And he said, you haven't heard that. I said, no. And he uh, gave me his real name. And he said, I said, well, what is, is there is there significance to your name? And he said, yes. He said, my name is an alien means love. Not, not illegal aliens, but an alien. UFO type aliens. And, and I stopped and I said, excuse me. He said, it means alien, alien for love. I said, Really? And uh, he said, now, I've been talking to Richard and Scott, and they said they don't believe in aliens. And I said, that's good. <laughs> you know, they're my staff. I was their boss, so that was good to know. And, and uh, he said, he looked at me with all seriousness, and he said, you believe in aliens, don't you? And I said, well, Jeeves, uh, no, I don't. And he just dropped his face. He dropped on his head and said, oh, I can't believe you don't believe in aliens. Now, why I tell you that story? Um, 
So things we'll be talking about this morning and next week as well. Next week I'll be in the chapel and Jason will be preaching chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 in Thessalonians. The things we're discussing this week and next week here are for the non-believer, or a person who does not believe in Christ, are as foreign as if you were to say to them, I believe in aliens. You know, the resurrection of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and then his second coming, which we'll be discussing today and next week as well. People think, do you really believe that? No, come on. You mean there's going to be a person who's going to float out of the sky and going to gather off the church at one time? You must be crazy. You must believe in aliens. And some people will believe that's exactly what you think. If you hold, you hold to that. Well, I don't believe in aliens, and I do believe what I'm going to be preaching on this morning, and, I, and the, the second coming of Jesus Christ and the significance of that. We're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 18, and we've asked Miss Eva, the priest, to come up, and she is going to read that passage. So if you would, would you stand? Turn your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, Eva's going to be reading for us verses 13 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's a, a Bible in front of you there as well. But uh, Eva, would you lead us as we read this passage? Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. But we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. But the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Bless the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Eva. Uh, you see that passage we're talking about this morning? That passage is foundational to the Christian life, and it helps us to understand the significance of what we believe in your in your in your your handout in the notes that you received as you walked in in the bulletin. It has a statement of what we believe, and it says this: We believe that Jesus came, He died, and was buried, was raised to life, and will come again in chapter 4, verse 14, where it says that 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, tell us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, buried, he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. He appeared to Peter and then to 500. You know, what what do we believe? We believe that Jesus Christ lived on this earth a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, which we celebrated a couple of weeks ago, rose from the dead, and he is coming back. And it's something to be excited about, to believe in. His cheese had fallen off his cracker. That's not true for you and for me. We, we know who Jesus is. We know what Christ has done, and Jesus is going to come back for us in our life. This passage of Scripture is going to teach us some things about how that how he's doing so and what it means. And the first thing I want us to see there, Jesus' the second coming is personal. Jesus' the second coming is personal. Now, you need to understand this. Why is this significant? 
If you look earlier in verse 13 and verse 14, why is, Pete, why is Paul writing this to those in Thessalonica? He's telling us this because the people in Thessalonica had had people who had died and Christ had not come back yet. And they were afraid of all that person who has a loved one who has passed and had not seen the second coming of Christ. What about them? Paul had been with the Thessalonians before, but did not have enough time to communicate to them actually about this teaching. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. And in that he doesn't want them to be clueless, but really wants them to understand the scripture and understand what takes place when Christ comes back. Now in this passage, what I'm going to do is this. We're going to start in the middle and we're going to go backwards. We're going to go from the middle to the front and the middle to the end. And so you're going to have to follow along with me here as we do so. We're going to start in verse 16 there. And we see in verse 16, as I mentioned just a second ago, that Jesus' the second coming is personal. Let's look at the passage of Scripture here. It's in verse 16. It says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. It's not John the Baptist. It's not Elijah. It's not someone else, but the Lord himself. If you look at chapter 1, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians, actually Paul talks about earlier about this. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, Jesus Christ is personal. He himself is going to come. But not only did he talk about this in Thessalonians, we are the, Luke, the disciple, discussing this as well in Acts chapter 1, verses, um, I think verses 10 through 11, it says this. And while they were gazing into heaven, at basically at Christ's ascension, those who had gathered there were walking Christ ascend, watching Christ ascend to heaven. As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus. Jesus himself, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Can you imagine what the disciples felt that day? They were like, wow, he's ascending to heaven, and then these angels talk to us, and he's coming back. And then the followers and Thessalonians, when Paul says to them, Jesus himself is going to come back. Now, that is wonderful. You get it? Our Savior is coming back to get us. Our Savior is coming for us. He himself, he's not sending somebody else. He's not going to tweet to us. He's not going to Instagram us a picture. He is coming for you and for me. And for the body of Christ, he himself, and personally, is coming for us. We celebrated his resurrection just two weeks ago. As we celebrate his resurrection and the authority that took place there in that same way, we will also see his second coming to take place. How is he coming back? Well, verse 16 also tells us in chapter 4 this. that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. That means a shout uh, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Did you, Did you hear it? It got your attention. Did, did, did anybody miss that? No. And none of you will miss it when Christ comes back. 
Paul tells us in those three ways in that verse second. What did he say there? He says, first of all, a cry of command. NAS, King James says, with a shout, he will come back. Now, we don't know who shouts. It didn't say. Is it Jesus going to be the one that shouts? Is it God, the Father, God, the Son? Is it the angel? The angel The angel says, the voice of the angel speaks, it says in the next point. But with a shout, it's a military term that is used. And it's used of an authority that says, charge, or going, go, this is the time now. The same voice that spoke and flung a billion galaxies into the sky. You didn't hear that voice. You will hear it when Christ comes back. That's the voice that gets our attention. That's the cry of command. That is the shout that takes place. It's the voice of the archangel also. Now, we don't. it, it could be Michael. We don't know if it's the archangel, so it could be Michael, it could be Gabriel. We don't know who the person is, who what angel it is, but that angel will speak as well. And then there'll be a sound of the trumpet of God. Trumpets were used throughout the scripture to announce festivals and celebrations and gathering of crowds. And the point is, is this. It will be so exciting. Nobody's going to miss it. And we're all going to be with our hands raised and think, yes, our Savior has come back. I'm curious, how many of you had a chance to watch the NCAA final game on Monday night? Some of y'all did. Let me tell you, in 30 seconds about the game, if you didn't watch the tournament, the Final Four, in the tournament, they say that this was the best Final Four a championship game of all time when it came to the, not the people playing, I know Kentucky wasn't there, and some of you are still in mourning, we'll discuss that later, but, you know, for those today, it was UNC was playing Villanova, and with five seconds to go, six seconds to go, Villanova is up by three points, and they dribble the ball down court, and then this guy shoots, uh, the, excuse me, the Villanova, UNC dribbles the ball down court against Villanova. Villanova is up by three points, and with about five seconds to go, actually 4.7 seconds to go, the UNC player falling backwards with his arm turned the other way and almost just throws it over his head. This crazy shot, and he hits it. It's 4.7 seconds to go, swoops, and the game is tied. No, people go crazy. UNC fans thought, this is fantastic. Only 4.7 seconds to go. There's a tie gamer going into overtime. Well, Villanova gets the ball. And Villanova's star player dribbles down. Everybody thinks he's going to shoot the final shot. Well, he passes it off with one second on the clock to another player. The guy's behind the three-point line and shoots the ball. And as this ball is halfway through the air, the horn goes off, the lights go on, and the ball swish. Well, the whole arena just erupts. UNC cannot believe they've lost it. Villanova cannot believe they won it. Charles Barkley, who is the announcer, is jumping up and down, screaming, and these people are just going crazy. Well, the next day, I watched a YouTube clip of what they had shown in Villanova. All the Villanova students had gathered in their basketball arena, watching it on Jumbotron, just like they're watching now. They're watching this game, five or 6,000 people crammed into this basketball arena, and they're all there watching this last 4.7 seconds. And sure enough, when the guy hits it, instantaneously, 
6,000 people jump to their feet, waving their hands, screaming. It's like it was orchestrated. It's like, how did they do that? They were so excited. Why? Because their team had won. That is nothing. Nothing compared to when Christ comes back. Because when Christ comes back, it will blow our mind. In your, in your blank, in your notes there, when you came up on the second point, first thing is, is Jesus' second coming is personal. Then it's let the blank. And the reason we let the blank is we can't describe it. When David, Pastor David and I were working on a sermon a couple of weeks ago, we thought, what word do we put there? Well, it's powerful. And it, preachers, that's good because it's a P word. And so, you know, it's personal and powerful, but powerful doesn't handle it. It's suddenly, it's proclaimed. It is such an awesome event. We let the blank. We thought, we don't know. We, we do not know a word. I even got the forest out and thought, well, what does this say? What word can I use here to describe it? And I could not think of a word that described the awesomeness, the all-consuming reality that Jesus Christ is coming again. Isn't that wonderful? Our Savior has not left us here to mourn by ourselves, to weep by ourselves, to go through life by ourselves. He empowers us through His Spirit if you know Him as your Savior. But not only that, He is coming back to get us. And that's the third point in your notes there. Is why is He coming back? He is coming back to gather His people. He is coming back to gather His people. His, his second coming is purposeful. His second coming is purposeful. What is he going to do? He is gathering his people. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 52 says this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We see it also there in chapter 4, verse 14, and also 17. It says this, it says, God will bring with him those, in, the, in our text in the, in today, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, that's what Paul was simply saying is as people are asleep, he's saying that it's like they have passed, they have died. Paul says that of Lazarus, he's asleep. The disciples think, well, we mean he's asleep. He's going to wake up. He's telling those Thessalonians, Thessalonica, he is saying to them, those loved ones who have fallen asleep, those loved ones who have passed, for this will be declared to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the second to the coming of our Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. Next verse. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now this word right here is crucial. The word caught up. The word means seized, or the word means to snatch. Uh, it's interesting, it's the Latin translation of the verb used in the word, uh, we get the word rapture from in the English. You have heard the term rapture. You may have heard the church is going to be raptured. What does that, that mean? It means to be snatched. It means to be seized. And according to this passage, how is that going to take place? But when I went to seminary years and years ago, I had all this figured out. I thought, I know what I believe. 
and it's going to happen like this and this and this and this. And I was in the 80s, and guess what happened on August 8, 1988? Some of you remember 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988. And I, was, I had the book, so my friend of mine gave me the book, August 8, 1988. It's a good date, right? He didn't come back. You know that man sold 300,000 copies of that book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Came Back in 1988, for $2 a piece. He made $600,000. And in 1989, the book was useless. I mean, hello, he didn't come back in 1988. But I had it all figured out. And then I went to seminary. I was convinced before I went, and then I left, I was confused. Thinking, why were you confused? Because I had godly seminary professors, very remarkably brilliant people, who some believe this, and some believe this, and some believe this, and I thought, well, really? I thought that we knew this. It was basically three, kind of three uh, views of the rapture. First of all, it's called a pre-tribulation rapture. The tribulation means the seven years of persecution, those on the earth. Pre-tribulation means the rapture of believers occurs before the tribulation. But some people believe in a mid-tribulation. The rapture of believers occurs at the midway point of the tribulation. Other people believe in post-tribulation. The rapture of the believers occurs after the tribulation on the day of the Lord and is synonymous with the second coming of Christ. Well, Dr. Weekly, which one is it? I got an opinion, and I know what I hope to be true, but my good friend believed differently. My mentor believed differently. Well, wait a second, which one's right? The point is, that's the point. You can have an opinion, and you can even read a book called The Three Views of the Rapture by Gunther, which helps you understand, but that's not the point. The point isn't to get it right. The point is this. Jesus Christ is coming again. And he is coming to gather his people. And it will not be missed. His second coming is personal. His second coming is powerful. His second coming is purposeful. But not only those three things. His second coming also is transformational. The last part of your notes. It's transformational, and it's transformational for your grieving, but also for your living. Did you catch that? Go back at the very first verse and the very last verse in the passage. How does it say there again? Verse 13. But I did not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Over the last year and a year or two, I have done numerous funerals. I'm the only minister in the weekly family. My father had, was one of eight. My mother was one of four. And when you people die, what do they do? They call a preacher and they call a cousin. And so I have preached all my uncles, basically all my uncles' funerals, all my cousins, a number of my cousins' funerals, my aunt's funerals, my grandparents' funeral. I preached my father-in-law's funeral about six years ago, my mother's funeral about eight years ago. I've done a lot of funerals. And as I, and even in our, in our in our church, in my Sunday school class, in my ABF class, last spring, we had three members of my class, men all under 62, die a tragic death. Basically of cancer or an illness and a loss, and even in our ABF class. And our church, a church of this size, consistently loses loved ones. But what Paul is saying there, 
is, oh, when you grieve, we don't grieve like those who do not have hope. Now, he doesn't say Christians should not grieve because Christians do grieve. Christians should grieve. If you had a loss of a loved one, of a parent, of a sibling, of a child, of a dear friend, of course you're going to grieve. Of course it's going to be difficult. But our grief is different. Our grief is a grief that has hope involved. As I mentioned, I buried my mother a number of years ago. And I remember she lived with us the last eight or nine uh, months of her life. Uh, in the process for her, was that she was declining. And in that process, I mean, she had a strong relationship with Christ. And I, I knew that. And I said, Mama, I said, when you, the, last, I, the last person you will see will be me. And then you will close your eyes. And then you will open them. And you will see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, what do you want to say? He said, I'm going to ask him why I couldn't live longer. It was pretty cool. I mean, she was full of life, you know, and she was 82 years old. Um, but I said, what do you want to do? She said, well, I want, to, I want to see Jesus, but then I want to see Granny, her grandmother. She had not seen her grandmother for 60 years. I want to see Granny. And I want to see my mama. And I want to see my daddy. And I'll see your father, my, my father. And someday, Thomas, I'll see you again as well. Why? Because we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. We grieve, but our grief is different. So I want to encourage you. If you have lost a loved one, and they've known Jesus as their Savior, though the pain is real and the hurt is there, you grieve with hope. Now, let me say this is also kind of pastoral advice. I've heard some of the stupidest things at funerals. And we go to funerals, and this person has lost a loved one, and we wonder, and we say stuff that says, Why would you say that? That's stupid. Why we, we get nervous? You gotta say something. No! When you go to a funeral, all you do is you offer your presence. I'm here. I love you. I'm here for you. And don't say a word. If you don't know what to say, don't say anything. I often say, You're gonna make it. I'll pray for you. And I just let, let the preacher deal with the deal with the sermon. You just offer your presence. See, second, second coming transforms our grieving, but it also transforms our living. Look at the last verse, verse eighteen. It says, "After it says, we will always be with the Lord." Then it says, "Therefore, encourage one another with these words." I can live a life of encouragement. I can tell my friends who've lost a loved one, "You're going to make it." I can encourage them. I can help them. I can live a life of encouragement. And I tell you, the, the greatest encouragement you will ever ever have with your loved ones is if you live a life that pleases Jesus. Please, parent, don't make your don't make when you pass away your son or daughter wonder where you're going. Give them that assurance because of how you've lived. That encourages them. If you know Christ as your Savior, you can know that you have an eternal life and will be with Him. Just as He said to the thief on the cross, you'll be with me in paradise. And give your kids that encouragement. One of the last funerals I preached was my sister's. Uh, my sister, my oldest sister, she's seven, eight years older than I was, uh, and she, um, three years, six years before she passed, she developed, uh, had breast cancer, and it was very difficult, and as most 
cancers go. Uh, you know, they gave her treatment. After a year or so, it went her cancer went to remission. We were all excited. Yes, Gail's going to conquer this, this cancer. And uh, it's been remission for about a month or two or maybe a year, and then it came back. And it came back with a vengeance. And I remember it was August, the last week of August, before she died in November, I got a phone call. And she said, Thomas, the cancer is back, and it's in my lungs, and it's spread to other organs as well. And she said, uh, they say I have six months to live, so I hope I'll make it to Christmas. Well, I tell you, she's only 62 years old. We had buried my mother, my other sister, and my, my two sisters, and I had buried my mom just a few years before that. We thought, oh, no, we're going to have to go through this again. And that was Gail, how difficult that was. Well, as time progressed that fall, we, uh, she started declining, rapidly, actually, much quicker than we'd anticipated. We'd go see her every weekend, or during the week, people just kind of continue to interact with her. And sure enough, at the end of October, we went to see her, and we get to the house, and she had been leaving the bedroom and coming out to the living room to talk to us, but that, that day, she was so weak, she couldn't get out of bed. And so I went into the bedroom. And I knelt down beside her bed, and I held her hand, and I said, Gail, I said, how are you? And she said, well, the pain medicine's working. She said, but I don't think I'm going to make it to Christmas. I don't think I'll make it to Thanksgiving, Thomas. And I remember holding her hand, and tears of her eyes, her eyes and tears in my eyes. Then I asked that question that you don't want to ask, but you really have to. I said, Gail, I said, how do you feel about dying? And all of a sudden, her eyes lit up. She said, oh, Thomas. She said, in a few weeks, I'll be with my Savior. And in a few weeks, I will see Mama again. And in a few weeks, I will be, see, I will see Grandma, Mammy. I miss her. She said, I'm sorry I'm leaving, and please take care of my, my, my husband, Larry. I'm sorry you will grieve, but don't grieve for me. She said, I know where I'm going. I'm going to my Savior. And I tell you, hearing that from her, she said, when you preach my funeral, and she'd asked me to preach her funeral, when you preach my funeral, I want you to sing a song as a group. That's the song of my life. And the song is called, I Love to Tell the Story. If you've been in church very long, you've heard it. I love to tell the story. Come on, sing things above. And, and I, I want, I'm not going to sing it to you so you can take a deep breath. You're okay. But I want you to listen, look at the words of this song. See, because Gail's life had been transformed by Jesus Christ. It transformed her grieving, and it transformed her living. She was known, she was my first mentor spiritually. I became a Christian at 9 or 10 years old. She was 7 years older, 8 years older, and every morning she read her Bible. Every, every time she was always, she was my example as a young kid. This is what a good Christian is. This is how you live a life. In her business that she was the, the office manager of, she had a reputation all over Davis County of, watch out, Gail Gates, Gail Weekly Gates, is walking with the Lord. Better watch your voice around her. I mean, she was, she, she was new, just 
Savior and live like it. And this was the song that we sung at her funeral. I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story will be my scene and glory. What is she talking about? What is it talking about? We're in the presence of our Savior in heaven. In glory, we've told the story. Now we live that story. I could tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Verse 2 says, I love to tell the story where more wonderful it seems than all the golden fancies and all our golden dreams. See, when Jesus' the second coming transforms our living. Money, things are insignificant. My sister was giving stuff away. Her last year of her life, when she knew she was dying, we'd go see her. She said, take this. Well, take this. I don't need this anymore. I'm dying. Here. You know, and not that she was saying it because she realized things were nothing. I just want to see my Savior. I want to see my family. And she would give stuff away. They all the golden fancies of all the golden dreams. I love to tell the story. It did so much for me. And that is just the reason I tell it now to the verse 3. I love to tell the story. It is pleasant to repeat. It seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. Last verse this. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory, I'll sing a new, new song. Twill be the old, the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. Will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. We sung that at my sister's funeral. And we were standing and we were crying because we had lost my sister. But there was a sense that we also know where she is. We weren't grieving like those who have no hope. We were grieving, because, but we were grieving because of our loss. Because so Jesus Christ had transformed my sister's grieving and had transformed her living. How about you? Have you experienced that transformation by Jesus Christ? He's coming back. And he is coming back personally. And he is coming back and you will not miss it. And he is coming back for a purpose. But the question for you and for me is, will you miss it? If you've never given your life to Christ, you can simply say, Jesus, will you forgive me? Jesus, I'm a sinful person. Will you forgive me of my sin, and I will repent of my sin, and I will turn to you. Will you be my Savior? And then your son or daughter or your parents or your loved ones will know, yes, that person will be in heaven. And are you honoring him with your life right now? See, Jesus the second coming transforms our life. Are you ready? Let's pray. And as we pray, I want you to ask yourself the question, are you ready? 
if Christ came back today, has Jesus transformed your grieving and your living? He hasn't. Give your life to Him today. Trust Him. Repent of your sin and turn to Him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and stuff with him and eat with him. Jesus, I pray during this time of the invitation, I pray that, that as we reflect upon your awesomeness in your second coming, that we will be willing to make the necessary decisions. Lord, for those who are grieving because of a loved one, I pray, Lord, that they would use this altar to grieve that much more and experience your hand upon their life as the church wraps its arms around them in their grieving. But Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that needs to recommit their life in Jesus Christ and submit to you for their living, for their life, that they would do so because of what you have done for them. And I pray this, Jesus, in your most precious and holy name.